from Relay FM. This is Upgrade, episode 229. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, Lunar Display, and Squarespace. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. How is Seattle, Washington? I am, yes, I'm in a hotel room in Seattle, having just attended the second PodCon. Uh, it was wonderful. I really like Seattle. Um, I like that we're on, well, I kind of like that we're on the same time zone. I don't like recording at nine in the morning, but here we are anyway. <laughs> Welcome to my world. It's 9 a.m. Pacific on, yes. it's not Mondays, Tuesday as we're recording this because I had some travel uh, for the holiday weekend in the U.S. And so we, we pushed the release back a day. But yes, this is what it's like for me. 9 a.m. podcast is what I do, Mike. Nobody cares guess... about this, Jason. We have a snow talk <laughs> question from Mark. And today Mark asks... Jason, if you were stationed on the USS Enterprise, that's the Star Trek thing, if you don't Uh know, what position would you want to hold and which Enterprise would you want to be on? Um, So this is a tricky question because there's sort of like, I would like to minimize my my chance of of having to put on a red shirt and Mm -hmm. then being killed by an alien. So... The, what I want to say is, like, I want to be the cruise director on uh, Captain Picard's Enterprise, the Enterprise D, because is that a job? You know, basically, like, it's it's like a big cruise ship, right? No threats. Oh, okay. okay. Just hanging out like you it's be the like, love boat or something. You want to work on the entertainment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I do some, you know, I, can, I, I, I take reservations for the holodeck. Uh, stuff like that. I, um, a fun, the fun answer would be, uh, I'm going to be, uh, the navigator on Captain Kirk's, uh, enterprise because there were lots of them over time. Uh, cause you know, Chekhov wasn't there in the first season and all of that. And that seems like a fun job. There's lots of buttons and switches to flip and you get to like go, you know, warp factor eight and, uh, you know, steer us hard about and all of that kind of stuff. And that would be fun. So, uh, that's my that's my fantasy answer. But my real answer is, what would be the safest place for me to be on the Starship Enterprise? Yeah, I don't think that I would be very well equipped uh, to do any of that stuff. Like, if there was, I like the idea of cruise director. That seems like a fun thing. Yeah. Can, do they have podcasters on the Star Trek spaceships? Well, I, I mean, technically, I, I think we would be in the communications department, right? Perfect. And we'd have to like ha- open the hailing frequencies and stuff like that. And we'd say, uh, Lieutenant Hurley. Uh, contact the Klingon ship and you'd go boop, 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 boop. Hello, Klingons. Wow. Would you like to hear a podcast? <laughs> I feel like I have a pretty high rank as lieutenant on that. <laughs> Just for that. That seems, that seems like a great deal. Uh, thank mm. you to Mark for sending in uh, that suggestion. If you would like to send in a question to help us open a future episode of Upgrade, to send in a tweet with the hashtag SnellTalk. A couple of items of follow-up. So last week we were talking about the potential for the iPhone to get three cameras. And Mm. one of the things we were talking about was a proposed mock-up based upon information, you know, in in quotation marks, uh, from an account, Twitter account, at OnLeaks, who seems to have had some interesting stuff in the past. They posted a different um, prototype based on more information of the three-camera setup. Uh, now, you know, we spoke about the idea maybe they they were going to do that weird square with the, the cameras all at different places. Maybe there's some benefit to that. This 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 different prototype uh, or this, this like mock-up has the three cameras in a horizontal orientation in the right. middle of the back of the phone. But it looks very much like the current kind of design with just yeah. the, like the um, the oval with the cameras inside. Now... This feels way more 
to me like something Apple would do visually. But again, Agreed. I don't know how it helps by having the three cameras in that exact arrangement. Yeah, that's the great mystery here. Is is it a you know, is it a, a, a deeper zoom? Are they trying to, you know, there's lots of possibilities for what it could be. It, it, if it has three cameras on the back, it is a mystery. So I guess we'll, I guess we'll see. But this is the, the, the trade-off of not being able to have a super thick space in your phone for a big long lens is that instead they, you know, sometimes you just stack on a bunch of different cameras that mm-hmm. are built for different tasks and you kind of move among them um i don't know it'll be uh fun to watch as the rumors continue this th- these seem less like um rumors and more like uh you know conceptions based on a spec rumor yeah some, so, some information yeah. leaked out somewhere and then somebody's made a design that they think matches that information effectively yeah um, yeah but this one is much more appealing to me visually than the than the one we spoke about last week. Sure. And at some point, presumably, if it's like every other year that there's been an iPhone, there will be a uh, a different kind of leak that will be more specific about the actual placement, and that happens a little bit later in the year. Yep. Um, not too not too much later, but a little bit later, and that's the one where there's almost like a you know somebody describes it or somebody has a really low resolution image or something, and then somebody turns that into a render, and that's the sort of like this is where we think it'll be and how it'll look, mm-hmm. but we don't have that now. It's sort of the uh, it's the early part of iPhone rumor season, so we just have a vague idea that there might be three cameras on the back exactly. of the Max. Yes, of the Max. Oh, um, so I've got some follow-up as well, Mike. Okay. Uh, I just want, it's not really follow-up, sort of, it's follow-out, I guess, to uh, the TV Talk Machine podcast, but I want to mention it here, because I think listeners of this show might like it. There's a show currently airing on the National Geographic channel, or Nat Geo, as Mm. they want all the cool kids to call it, but they don't. Uh, It's called Valley of the Boom. It's a six-part miniseries about the early days of the web in Silicon Valley. It's three interlocking stories. It's Netscape and the IPO of Netscape, which was dominant and then was crushed by Microsoft. It's uh, a site called The Globe, which it was Facebook before Facebook, a little too much before Facebook, which is why nobody has ever heard of theglobe.com. And uh, a streaming site run by a guy who is a complete fraud who just uh, who just g- stole people's money. Hmm. Um, and so those three interlocking stories happen. And then it's told in this hybrid format. It's similar to what they did on Nat Geo with the, the show Mars. Although I think it's done a little more artfully on Valley of the Boom, where you have actors who are acting out uh, things that, that happened theoretically in the 90s. Uh, and telling that story like a drama would, like a traditional mm-hmm. drama. But there are also interviews with the participants oh. uh, it, from the present day, and they go back and forth. So a lot of times you'll see Jim Barksdale talking about the early days of Netscape, and then you cut to a scene uh, where that is going on. And his his comments, he's almost commenting on what's going on. Uh, very cleverly done it's not the usual kind of drama format or documentary format it's this weird hybrid but i i liked it and it gets pretty meta at several points where characters talk to the screen um one of the actors playing one of the parts poses as the person doing the present day interview until they're informed that um they're the they're an actor and they're not the actual guy i mean there's some there's some really kind of quirky funny stuff too and the 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 90s on the internet this is like it's almost like the pirates of silicon valley for the um birth of the commercial web 
and internet. So I don't know where it's available outside the U.S. or when it will be available there. Uh, currently airing on Nat Geo, if you've got uh, cable or access in uh, some other way to National Geographic Channel on demand or something like that, you might be able to dig it up. And I think it's airing for the next three or four weeks too. But it, it, Valley of the Boom, it was, uh, it was fun. Uh, I've seen the first half of it so far and uh and it's pretty good so for those who are intrigued uh check it out so let's move into upstream uh as of today it was announced the academy award nominations were announced and there's some interesting stuff in there but as it pertains to this segment netflix have received 10 academy award nominations for their movie roma which they made a real big deal out of as you can see quite rightly so this is going to be big for netflix because i would say the odds are on for them that they will walk away with at least an oscar for an original movie which is a pretty big deal for them so we'll be be talking about that uh, later on next month when the oscars uh happen yeah it's good um it's an interesting sign that in the end, the Academy cares more about the art of Alfonso Cuaron than it does about the politics of Netflix, which is great because that, that was the question yep. uh, was like, will they downgrade and they still might for the final voting. It's probably not going to win best picture. Probably not. Although it, it, it might, it's got a chance I would say, but um, we'll see how that, that goes, but it, it tied for the most nominations. So clearly um, whatever suppression you know, the politics of Netflix versus the Academy regarding, you know, it's a streaming service versus a traditional theatrical release and all of that seems to have not had any uh, appreciable impact here. Um, and NBC Universal is working on a streaming service, of course, because who isn't? They are looking to launch an ad supported, but I'll get back to that in a minute, oh, direct boy. to consumer oh. service in 2020. Uh, yeah. Bonnie Hammer, who was previously the cable chief, has been put in charge of the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so NBC Universal are going to be showing their own content, new and old, and also offering some content from outside partners. So here's where it gets a, a little bit confusing, but it is interesting. If you already pay for NBC via a cable provider, you're, you're going to get the service for free, potentially with ads, maybe with not, right? Mm-hmm. They are also planning a paid version with no ads if you don't have cable as well, so you can get it straight over the top. Okay, it is confusing enough that you've only described two of the four ways you can get this. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> so I believe what they're saying is, if you have cable, this is so, the easiest way to think of this is, they're kind of doing a CBS All Access, where in the US, CBS All Access, the way it works is they've got original shows like Star Trek Discovery, which just came back, and The Good Fight, and they're doing a new Twilight Zone version, and they're doing a bunch of other Star Trek, and a bunch of stuff like that. Those are their originals. And you also have access to basically all the CBS shows that are on the CBS network and their library, and not just like the latest five, like on Hulu, but like the whole season and all the previous seasons, and it's all there for you. So, uh, and you pay for it, and there's one price for CBS All Access that shows it to you with ads, and there's another price that shows it all to you without ads, which is actually kind of uh, fun for the network stuff, because it means that you can watch their network programming without ads um, if you pay them enough. Um, What NBC wants to do is, and they made a big deal of, is this idea that primary the primary audience for this is going to be people who already have cable so it's a streaming service where they're talking up the non-cable cutter aspect of it which is kind of bizarre but what they're basically saying is uh and this is them walking away from hulu i think because they still own 30 percent of hulu and they play they're playing it coy about whether they'll sell it to disney which yep. owns basically the rest of it but this is basically their own hulu which is if you're paying for cable you will get to log in to nbc streaming service and watch it for free with ads so 
it's basically a replacement for NBC.com uh, video streaming. They'll take all the Saturday Night Live content that they put on there and they'll put it on this service instead and they'll put it behind a wall. But it's not just a paywall. It's a login wall if you've got cable. Um, so that's option one. Option two is if you don't want to see the ads and you're a cable subscriber, you'll be able to give them money and turn off the ads like CBS All Access. If you're a cord cutter, you can pay, I believe the plan is, a little bit like CBS All Access to get it with ads and more to get it without ads. So four uh, okay. different Thank options <laughs> based on whether you have cable or not and you want to see ads or not. It's super confusing. Tim Goodman wrote a great piece who I do the um, TV Talk Machine podcast with uh, where he basically said this is a fascinating example of a company kind of embracing the reality of uh, of streaming services in the future while also being in complete denial about how it changes the business model. Because they're like, we did a streaming service and let's tell you about how it'll work for cable subscribers. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? But that's what they're doing. But they're, this is uh, their reality yeah. though, right? Like this is, I mean, yeah, it's, well, it, this is probably the best thing for NBC Universal. Follow, follow the money is what I, <laughs> I mean, that's a classic thing, but do, do it here. Where's the money coming from? The people who make money at NBC Universal on the NBC side, on, you know, where are they making their money from they're making money from selling ads and they're making their money uh well i mean it's so it's ads and it's on the broadcast it's from like cable deals and stuff like that so we're gonna we're gonna uh, give this as a reason for you to hold on to your cable subscription they're owned by comcast by the way so this is a key part of how comcast makes money is people pay for cable right so this is a this increases the value of your cable subscription one and two the primary tier that people will be watching on has ads and nbc's ad sales force will presumably sell those ads like they do ads now on nbc's website and also obviously on their tv networks so uh, it, it's i think it's actually smart uh, it's too complicated but i think it's smart in the sense that it's it's them admitting they need to to build their own streaming service while also being accepting the fact that there's a current way they make money <laughs> and they need to keep the money rolling in in that way. Um, but this is an example, I think, Mike, when we talk about all these streaming services and all the silos going up, like it used to be everybody had their own business. And then there was this ancillary business for streaming where you just chucked a bunch of your archival content and your old shows into it. And that's basically Netflix at the beginning. It was just like, sure, Netflix, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then they did their own things on their primary business. And now all of them realize they can't do that. Netflix is the primary business. They need to take their stuff back and build their own Netflix, build their own silo. And so everybody's doing it. Disney's doing it. Warner's doing it. NBC's doing it. CBS did it. And then obviously there are other players like Apple. Um, so this is just, this is where we're going to end up. And and it's interesting if we bring in the other piece here, which is, um, and I think we've got an item about it in a minute, is, you know, Netflix is aware that providers of content like NBC Universal are going to be less inclined to sell a lot of their content to Netflix in the future because they're going to want it for their own service. Just like how Disney uh, is going to build up Marvel shows on Disney Plus and the Marvel shows are are uh, going to get canceled at Netflix. So we're, we're seeing this realignment happen where all the big players uh, have realized that Netflix is not going to, they don't, it's not an ancillary revenue stream anymore. It's like the revenue stream of the future and they want to own it. And so they're all going to build their own silos and pull their content off of Netflix uh, eventually. Yeah. You know, with the exceptions of like we mentioned a few weeks ago, that Friends deal where Warner Brothers basically uh, got paid a huge amount of money by Netflix to keep Friends on Netflix because it's a huge show for for Netflix. 
But in the end, they're going to put it on their own streaming service because, of course, they are. Disney will show off that streaming service that you mentioned, Disney Plus, for the first time on April 11th at their annual investor meeting. Very keen mm. to see what that ends up looking like. Yeah. And mentioning uh, Netflix and popular TV shows, Steve Carell is going to be starring in a new Netflix comedy about Space Force, which is uh, the current U.S. government's attempt at creating a new space a new group. branch of the military called go. the Space Force. Yeah, yeah I- I've struggled to really explain it because my brain can't effectively mm-hmm. conceive it. Um, it's set to debut soon. Um, Steve huh. Carell is sure. co-creating this series with the, with Greg Daniels, who is responsible for adapting The Office for the U.S. Now, that is important for this reason. The Office is still currently the most watched TV show on Netflix. Like, by a big margin, more than Friends. Well, the NBC exec that um, that Natalie Jarvie at The Hollywood Reporter talked to said it's often number one. It's not always the number one show, but yeah. The Office is often the number one viewed show on Netflix. So it is a huge deal for Netflix. I will tell you, my daughter is responsible for a large number of those yep. views because she watches the, the, the Office endlessly on Netflix. Well, so I it's, found it's a, a, huge deal a report Netflix. on Recode for data from Netflix for uh, 2018. And The Office accounted for 7.19% of all of Netflix like viewing. The next yeah. is Friends with 4.13. So it's Interesting. a huge difference. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big show for Netflix. Yep. So here's, here's Netflix. This, and this is why we don't talk about you know, every deal that is made with a streaming service because there's 500 TV shows mm-hmm. on, on, on uh, English language uh, scripted this year. But uh, this is relevant because... Uh, Pertaining, so NBC Universal owns The Office, so it's entirely possible that either NBC Universal is going to take its ball and go home when it launches its streaming service, and The Office is only going to be available on NBC's streaming service, or they will hold it for ransom for Netflix and crank up the price even more, and probably demand that it not be exclusive to Netflix. So Netflix, it, The Office is going to get really expensive for Netflix as time goes on. And uh, there are going to be strategic reasons why the makers of The Office, the owner of The Office, doesn't want it on Netflix without it being a high price to pay. So what does Netflix do to hedge against that and to counter that is make a deal with the star of The Office and the executive producer of The Office to make a new show on Netflix because they know that people like what those guys do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it gives them something that Netflix will own. Uh, that's Steve Carell and Greg Daniels. So it's it's fascinating to view this through the lens of like why did they make this deal? And it's like oh that's why it's because The Office is huge on Netflix and might be going away. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace because they will let you easily create a website for your next idea or project or event. With a unique domain name available to you, the the, the advantage of beautiful award-winning templates and 24-7 customer support, they have absolutely everything you're going to need. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. There is nothing to install or patch, or upgrade. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff when you use Squarespace. They've got it all covered for you. I have created countless websites on Squarespace that have different requirements. I've created blogs. I've created sites that have online stores. I created a site for my wedding. Squarespace is so adaptable. It has all of the templates and options that you're going to need and all of the functionality that you're going to want. It really is just a wonderful, wonderful service. You can sign up for a free trial right now. Just go to squarespace.com upgrade. On that trial, you can go in 
in, you can customize everything and make the website that you want. And then when you want to launch it out to the world, you just have to sign up for one of their plans that start at just $12 a month. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code UPGRADE. This is going to get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, and you'll be showing your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash upgrade and the code UPGRADE to get 10% off your first purchase. A thanks to Squarespace for their support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Jason, let's talk about foldable phones. Oh, foldable phones, you foldable say? Phones. You mean like how the, the iPhone uh, 6 could like bend? Well, sure, but like I think more intentional folding uh, oh, okay. than, than unintentional right. folding because tell of me more, the tell differences me more. in air grade aluminium or whatever it was. Was it like mm-hmm. air grade? That that was it, right? Like airplane spec aluminium was what uh, they I ended don't know. up using. I can't I can't tell the difference between the airplane grade aluminium and mm-hmm. the uh, surgical stainless steel. I, I don't I don't know how this stuff is. This is like food grade. Uh, what <laughs> like, I don't know what these food safety <laughs> aluminium. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> foldable phones have long been considered as like a potential future form factor, right? Because you could have a phone that you could fold in half so it's smaller, and you can open it up, and you've got a small tablet. And this has been something that people have thought about for a while. Flexible displays have been a thing that have been shown off at CES for multiple years, right? As they've been building that technology up. But this kind of this year, kind of the tail end of 2018, beginning of 2019, is where we're actually starting to see it become somewhat of a reality. So you may remember a few months ago, Samsung had a super short demo at the developer conference where like they turned all the lights off and showed a phone that could open up, right? Like it was a prototype, so they didn't want to show it, but they could show that they had a phone which had a screen and you folded it in half. And there was another screen. So this is currently being referred to as the Galaxy F, and we will probably see it for sale at some point this year. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we're seeing this at, at the Galaxy event, which I think is within the next couple of weeks. This will probably be, I reckon, announced alongside the Note, which is like in September or October. Yeah, it's um, unclear. It's unclear, yeah, but it's it seems unclear. like it's going to be a real product. They're not going to make a huge number of them. It's probably going to cost a fortune, but yeah. they are... Well, going to do it. We'll come back to this a little bit later on, but kind of probably like the original Galaxy Note, right? Like, it maybe didn't sell a ton of them at first. It was a weird product. It had a bunch of strange downsides, but ended up becoming something uh, quite interesting. But we'll, right. let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. Because also at CES, the first foldable OLED phone that's available for purchase was shown off. It's called the Royal FlexPi, which is just that name, okay. by the way, is spelled in none of the ways that you would expect. <laughs> Right. If you can think of how you would spell Royale right. FlexPi, it isn't so this is, that. Yeah, no, let's let's do it because this will be, uh, everybody's going to go on a little journey now. Uh-huh. Okay. R-O-Y. Okay. You feeling good? Yeah. This, o- uh, oh, oh. L-E. <laughs> oh, Royale. Oh, Royale. Oh, that's totally different. F-L-E-X. Yep. We're all good. We got that part. Capital P. Mm-hmm. A. Huh? I Royal Flex Pie. Everybody Royal knew that, right? Flex Pie. Royal Flex Pie. So, mm. as you can imagine, the Royal Flex Pie, being the first phone of its kind, <laughs> isn't very good. Um, uh, there's a really good video um, on The Verge from Vlad Savov, and he uh, kind of eviscerated the thing. Right, like he, I, I don't know if you've seen this video, Jason, but like he really just, just like okay, it's yeah. cool that this thing exists. 
but it's like broken in every fundamental way. <laughs> like it doesn't work very yeah, well. I, didn't he refer to it as something as, as like delightfully terrible or something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So I mean, but that this is kind of what I think what you would expect for something like this in its first iteration. Like it, I find it really funny. Like because uh, I've seen a few videos about this. Everyone's like, you feel like you're about to break it every time that you kind of bend it around to where it's like that to, to the kind of the folding in half thing. Also, I actually think that the way that they're doing the folding is is wrong. So the way that this phone works, I, I think this is the way it will end up probably not being in a lot of instances. But the way that this phone works is you have the screen and then you fold the screen in on itself. So you have a screen on each side of the phone, right? So when it's folded in half... There's two sides, and when it's opened up, you have a larger screen. Where uh-huh. it looks like, at least from what we could make out from Samsung, is they had a screen that you folded onto itself, and then there was an extra screen on the outside. <laughs> now, that probably logically makes more sense, unless there's some way that you can like kill half of the screen or whatever, because then you have, like, you're holding the phone, but your hand is touching an active screen. Like, it's yeah. a, it's a, this is a complicated thing that I don't think we've, well, we definitely haven't seen anybody make a good version of this yet, but this is how it goes, right? The form factor isn't necessarily bad just because the first iteration of it isn't great. And I will bring up phablets at this point. This was the joke. Nobody calls big phones phablets anymore, right? That's the portmanteau of phone and tablet because all of our phones are that big now, right? Like of mm-hmm. the phones that are available now, they're just smartphones. There isn't a phablet anymore because anything bigger than what we currently have is just straight up a tablet. Now, if you remember, like this was something that everyone was laughing at. The original Galaxy Note, right? We were all laughing at. And I bet like the iPhone 6, I bet is bigger than that now. I didn't look this up, but I bet it is. And the thing about this is, right, we're thinking about what the, because obviously we're talking about it, would Apple ever do this? Would Apple ever make a flexible phone? And this was an right. article that you wrote for Tom's Guide last week, yeah. which is why we're talking yeah. about it. Full credit to uh, my, my pal, uh, longtime pal, uh, Philip Michaels, who's an editor at Tom's Guide. And, I w- you know, every two weeks when I write for them, I say, any ideas, any thoughts? What do you want? Like, I take requests. And uh, he said, what about, and it's interesting because, you know, I'm sort of writing every other week about the iPhone for them. And they are steeped in all of the other phones that are going on in a way that like Macworld is not. I mean, PC World is, but Macworld is not. And so he comes with like a lot of pitches for me that are, what's the Apple take on this thing that's happening with all the other phones, like 5G or something like that. And so he said foldable fo- phones. And I was like, mm. he gave me a couple other items. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. And then I, I thought about it. And I was like, actually, there's probably a, a conversation to be had about this. If we assume that foldable phone tech is happening, when does Apple, if if ever, embrace it? And what does that look like? And what are the pros and, and what are the cons? Mm-hmm. And that that's basically what my piece uh, on, on Tom's Guide is about, which is... Um, you know, yeah, Apple's not going to, Apple is not a company that rushes in because they say, oh my God, uh, everybody else is doing this. I have to get in on this now, you know, primarily because unlike every other phone maker, Apple has a whole bunch of other things that differentiate it, right? Like if you are Android phone maker X and you don't rush to this new thing, um, your competition does, uh, you know, you don't have, I mean, (laughs) you might have some extra junk that you loaded on the phone's home screen or something but basically you have nothing else to differentiate yourself because it's android and so and this is how it worked with pcs back in the day 
Apple did the same thing because Apple was not playing quite the same game. They could afford to wait and say, it's not time yet. This stuff isn't good enough. Uh, everybody else is rushing to get the checkbox that, you know, on the spec sheet that says, yes, we have that thing. It doesn't do anything, but we have it. And Apple can afford to wait uh, and until it feels the time is right. And I feel like that is probably um, what will go on with this is that they'll wait. And you mentioned phablets. It's the same thing. They can wait a little bit. Uh, they can even be skeptical about it. Or they might be super into it. There have been rumors that Apple has worked on foldable tech uh, too. Um, and, but if if there comes a moment where they feel like they've figured it out and can put it in a phone that uh, that they can price, I would say reasonably, but... I think maybe not even reasonably that they can they can sell a lot of at a price that will give them the revenue that they want because maybe the first one is a twelve hundred dollar phone, right? Yeah, this I mean, this feels like it would be this the is the most next step above the phone. iPhone ten. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. This is another like quantum leap where it's like it's way more expensive, and maybe the iPhone ten tech has come down at that point, and then this thing leaps mm-hmm. in above it. So, but I I don't think they wouldn't do it. I think if the tech is good, so that they can make a good product with it. Um, Apple actually has a lot of advantages to this kind of approach, but it also has some disadvantages, like the fact that they don't make their displays, right? Like this is a display tech, which means that in the end, they're going to be relying on Samsung or LG to make these foldable OLED displays for them, um, unless they have a Skunkworks project where they're working on foldable phones, which the only rumors we've heard are about that... um, the OLED, the micro, micro OLED, OLED yeah. uh, stuff that Apple is working on, but um, but not the the foldable OLED stuff. So they may have to you know wait for this tech to to come from a a provider. But if you know if they feel the time is right and they've got a good product that and a and a good story, uh, I don't know. They've got they've got some advantages too. It's it's not. I I thought it was a worthy exercise of like what would it be like because mm-hmm. this is something that we've we've talked about foldable phones and we've talked about like. You know what? What will Apple do in the future? But I, I hadn't personally, at least, walked down that path of like, what would it look like? So when I was thinking about this, I kind of broke it down into four areas that Apple would have to overcome or would have to have answers for for why they would make this. Like looked up, looking upon previous decisions that they've made. So like, is the market proven? Right? Like Apple yeah. tend not to release products that are brand new right like nobody nobody else is doing anything like this sometimes they do but it's in rare cases Mm -hmm. and it's not usually when like in this case unless they have secretly built a a factory that makes foldable oled screens like they're going to be using a part from a partner which means it's going to be on other devices Mm -hmm. it's not going to be they're not going to be first out with this because they can't they can't be they're going to be using a, a samsung widget or somebody else's widget so they can't be that like siri was was first right they do that occasionally if they think they can make a big splash but the the conditions have to be exactly right and for this it seems like not so instead they're going to play the waiting game which is you know when do they think it's a a product that or a feature that is worthy of the apple level of quality that is expected and i'm making air quotes there but you know what i mean like from apple's Mm -hmm. perspective versus it being sort of a silly thing that isn't practical that people are doing because they can but they don't have any idea of how to do it and then apple sweeps in and goes aha we figured it out and are the first ones to do this right because that's that's apple that's what they do it's easier to them to do that stuff with software right with hardware it is way harder for them to oh well they are way less likely to kind of roll into an unproven market and be like haha we made a new thing nobody's doing anything like this like it 
it, that's less likely for them. Unless they invest in it enormously over the course of many years, like with uh, the PA Semi acquisition, which led mm-hmm. to all of their processor capabilities. Now they can do that with processors, but yes. it took them a long, a long time, time yeah. to get there. And they may be doing that with displays now, with this rumor about micro OLED stuff, but who knows? And it might be years before we see that, if ever. Can they do it elegantly? Because here's the thing, that the, all of these first models, what they are not going to be is elegant. And that's understandable, right? Because we're in kind of the infancy of this technology being available to consumers. But it's why, like, you know, the mechanisms of bending these things is going to be super awkward. They're all yep. going to have, well, at least I reckon that most of them will be like this Royale where it's kind of like that Surface Book where the, the join isn't <laughs> flat. Laugh it every leaves time. air <laughs> that you can see through. So, like, it doesn't yeah. actually close completely, right? So, like, all of this stuff has to be maybe ironed out or at least accepted upon but like when we see these phones i don't think we're going to find them very elegant for a while yeah in europe it's called the royal with cheese (laughs) um yeah i i think you're right i think i do think this is a place a, a case where maybe apple and samsung actually i think maybe there's some hardware design prowess that comes into effect because samsung's got uh, very good hardware designers too we can we make fun of samsung for knocking off apple's phones but you know they they among android phones you know they do a very good job um oh and also it, like don't forget uh we had all those beautiful samsung phones while apple was still rolling out the iphone 6 design right like samsung for a while in my opinion like they way eclipsed apple in what they were actually right. producing well, I mean, regardless of, of those kinds of opinions, I mean, there's no denying that they have hardware. They're 100%. good at hardware. Yeah, they right? do. They do. Um, so, but Apple is good at hardware too. So I do think that that's a possibility here where, all right, we built flexible OLED screens, but only a few companies are going to, at first at least, build them in a way, if it's possible, that isn't super awkward and and janky, right? Like that's, and I'm not entirely convinced that that first Samsung phone won't be that, where it's really like, well, yeah, we'll we, we want to we want to sell <laughs> these displays, uh-huh. and we'll make one, but it's not there yet. But at some point, and and this is where Apple can bring its skills to bear. Apple's going to get samples if they don't have them already, of foldable OLEDs, and they're going to be maybe they've been spending the last couple of years with samples from Samsung, and they've been figuring out like how would you do this, and do you do a sandwich kind of thing where there's a, a folded layer and then there's another screen or do you do it where it it's actually the screen that folds around and does the folded around part how do you get it to deactivate or do you could you put uh could you put data on the back side do you put an apple logo back there what do you oh what do you God. do um what do you do with the back side uh and and think about that stuff and that's all like hardware design that apple's good at and uh, they've got the they've got their own platform that they can customize for it. So that's their advantage in this scenario is that ultimately, um, you know, I think iOS being on devices as small as the SE all the way up to the big iPad Pro gives them some uh, and the fact that apps are on iOS are better suited for large screens, like very large screens than on Android because of the iPad. Um you know, maybe not phablets, but even then, I mean, my experience with Android has always been that even on very large Android phones, it feels a little empty mm-hmm. um, because of the way that Android apps, most Android apps are built. They don't like, and the, the lack of popular Android tablets makes me skeptical about large screens um, on Android in a way that I'm not at all about the iPad because, you know, Apple 
<laughs> Apple has done a pretty good job uh, getting iPad software there. So I think there's lots of advantages that are in Apple's uh, on Apple's side here, um, including the fact that they would have to design something like this so that it didn't feel super weird and unpleasant to use. It would have to be a pleasant experience. And, you know, that might not happen until the screen tech gets a lot better. I don't know what, what the state of affairs is. Is this something they could do in two years or not? Yeah, but um, I think it, we, there are a lot of questions that. until we see what Samsung have done. Right, like that's the key. Right. Like what have Samsung been able to produce? Right, with their own display. They should be able to make the best one. Yeah, and, and have it do what they want it to do because it's their display right so that mm-hmm. that should be they, they should do that it's not to say that though um i was uh, so i was starting to envision what an iphone foldable iphone display thing would be like and i have two different thoughts about it which is you know the first one is the obvious one which is you take something the size of the 10s or the 10s max and you have it flip open and suddenly it's got double the screen size and it's like a little it's like a it's mini like an ipad mini yeah um so it's a big phone that becomes a tablet and I think that's the most kind of obvious answer. But I did have this thought about if this was a way to make a smaller phone, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure people love phones with big screens. I'm not sure they love a big screen in their pocket. They love it, you know, in their eyeballs, basically. Um, and so could they instead make a phone that was smaller that folded out into something that was bigger? And would that be a thing that would be popular with people, something that's maybe even more like the SE, more like that dumb like Palm phone that was your second phone kind of thing. The idea that if you could fulfill the you know Steve Jobs's uh, law of iPhone design, the everything must get thinner and lighter and smaller. Um, well, it wouldn't get thinner, but you could have something that was smaller in your pocket, and then you opened it up and flipped it out, and it was a big phone. And then when you were done, you just closed it and stuck it back in your pocket. And I wonder about that as, a, as an opportunity for uh, basically making a phone that has a big screen but still fits in people's pockets in a way that the 10s Max maybe doesn't. Yeah, I was thinking, like, how would I want to use this? And I was thinking about that example, right? Because if you had a small phone going to a big phone. So, like, imagine you were looking through Twitter and you were, like, kind of scrolling things on the smaller screen and you see a video and you open up the phone and press play on the video so you have a bigger screen for the video and then you close it back again and go back to twitter right like i, I kind of think yeah. that that's an interesting way to use your device check your notifications and see what the time is and do something really quick and then if you want to dive into something you you pop it open and then you've got a, a bigger thing it's a it's possible it's I, very science fiction isn't it it is in fact um I would imagine that if you're somebody at apple who designs iphones or at samsung right and you get your hands on one of these as a demo, as demo tech, or even you don't have them and you're just mocking them up in hardware. Like one of the first things you've got to do is have a whole bunch of people try to use it. And like the early days of the iPhone where they had things hooked up to like Macs with a cable Mm -hmm. (laughs) in order to uh, pretend that you were holding a a phone in your hand, like in Ken Kashenda's book, right? Um, It's a little like that because... I'm not quite sure what all the ergonomic ramifications of this are. It might be that if you make a foldable phone that's like an SE, um, people are like, oh, yeah, I, I I, mean, it might be whatever it is that people hate unfolding it, <laughs> right? Like we can make a foldable phone and, and the world says we're not interested in that. It might be. We don't know. And, and the first thing I would do uh, if I was working on a project like this would be to 
uh, tried out with as many people as I could, presumably secretly inside Apple or Samsung, and uh, just discover, you got to learn what the issues are with this stuff, even if it's an idealized version of this. Like, do people want to do this? Are people ever going to open it up? Are they going to get frustrated? What are all the issues there? And that, that's fascinating. And that's a huge amount of work, which is why this is, you know, the, those people presumably hopefully get paid a lot of money to do their jobs well. There were two other points that I was thinking about as to, you know, if Apple would want to do this. One of them is if they can do it at large scale, right, which is a thing for them, which makes sense, right? They sell lots of phones. If they can only sell 500 of these a year because of the technology, well, they're probably not going to get into that market. But the other is, can they do it without too many trade-offs? And in your article, you mentioned something uh, that you referred to as Jobs' Law. What is that? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mentioned it earlier. It's the short version is the Jobs' Law, which is every iPhone, every Apple product should get thinner and lighter, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. is the Jobs' Law. That is the um, that is the ongoing push. It, it, it doesn't always happen, but I think the idea there is that Apple is always pushing its product designs to be thinner and lighter. Now, are there... I'm not saying that that's like an ideal form. I'm saying that I think Apple feels it's an ideal. It's something to strive for. And so if you can make your laptop smaller and lighter instead of bigger and heavier or keep it the same even um, that Apple, it's like you've got a manager saying, you know, could we make it lighter? Like not, not that you have to, but like, let's strive for that. Mm -hmm. Let's try to make this thinner and lighter. And uh, and that's that's the question with something like this is that this is totally new tech and I'm not just looking at it. It seems unlikely that this would be something that would be thinner. And no, lighter. So, no way. <laughs> so so you would have to you know, how how does Apple handle that? Um, you know, and is Apple's goal to make it a, you know, thinner when unfolded and then thicker when folded or, or, or yeah, what? You, I don't you know. It's know, a mystery. It's like, oh, at its thinnest point, this is the thinnest iPhone we've ever, you know what I mean? It's just like, but uh, what, what happens when you fall on you gotta, that, that Right. It's, it's like the most surface area display per gram or <laughs> per volume that we've ever put in an iPhone, right? I'm sure there's some spec that there's, there's Apple will come Ive up with. Thing there. Most screen density in the smallest phone volume ever, something I mean, like that. You know, and, and it's like, I guess the way you would, the easiest way to get away with that idea is it's a brand new phone in the line. Like the 10R is thicker than the 10, right? And they, they right. kind of like was because it's brand new. Yeah. So, And this would be like that, right? This mm-hmm. would, if they did something like this, it would have to be a completely new part of the product line. Yeah. It would the be, fourth new iPhone that they released <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's a yeah, it's above the ten. It's this other thing mm-hmm. that goes beyond it and is even more kind of expensive and aspirational, at least at first. Like, this the future this today could be a brand new product line, right? Like the, it could be named slightly differently. Like it might not be called like the iPhone twelve flex or whatever. Like they might give it a new name even because it is it this could, weird yeah. thing that sits in the middle. It's like this convertible yeah. thing. I would imagine they'll call it an iPhone just because the iPhone is such a big sure, product sure. and it's such a great I, brand. But I mean, it would be yeah. it would be a very different kind of product, and it, potentially it might not be. It might really be you know a phone, and even unfolded, it's not really even iPad screen size. It's no. it's still a phone you know with a with an alternative view. So it, you know I would imagine they would call it an iPhone, but who knows? Who knows? I, I don't know. I'm really excited to see Samsung's. I genuinely like I cannot wait to see what yeah. they've done. 
Well, I mean, this is we people can roll their eyes and be like, "Oh, this is ridiculous." It may well be ridiculous, but what's interesting is that a product that has been a category that has been talked about for ages since the beginning of the conversations about OLED, people are like, "Oh, you know what? They're going to be able to make flexible displays," and there were demos of like this thing. But 2019 seems to be the year where these products will actually be released that use this technology. Now, will they be good? Will they be practical? Who knows? Probably not. But but it's a starting point, and it makes you start to think, okay, what if this is a real thing? And we, we'll find out. Maybe it's not. Maybe Samsung will, uh, it'll be a complete flop. Uh, maybe that LG TV that rolls up that was shown at CES that mm-hmm. is apparently actually going to ship this year, maybe it will be a flop. Maybe it won't. Maybe it has weird issues that um, they're not talking about that the reviewers were discovered. They're, that's all, all to play for. But it is interesting in the sense that we might be at the point where... Um, this tech that has been promised for a long time actually exists. And if it does, then, you know, then things potentially get interesting. All right. Today's show is also brought to you by our friends over at FreshBooks. I use FreshBooks and love FreshBooks. I've been using it this week to send invoices out as I do every week. And every time I use FreshBooks, I am marveled at how easy it is to use. And that is because they are so focused on saving time for their users. By simplifying tasks like invoicing and tracking expenses and getting paid online, FreshBooks drastically reduces the time it takes for their over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. Look, FreshBooks is a great system to use, but let's not lie about this, right? Like, invoicing is not fun. Like, there is no... I don't know many people. I've never met anybody who's like, I want to do all... I just want to do invoicing all the time because I love it. So when you are actually working on sending invoices... You want to be able to use a simple, easy-to-use system that takes you not a lot of time to do, so you can just go back and get on with whatever it is that you want to be doing instead. That is one of the main reasons I love FreshBooks. They make it so easy for me so I don't have to be spending hours and hours every single day just digging around in there trying to work out why I haven't been paid because all of that stuff is shown to me. I can see it. I can see when someone's looked at my invoice. I can see when it's been printed. That's all available to me. And I don't have to spend hours and hours working out how to design the invoice perfectly because they have a great editor where you see exactly how the invoice is going to land in the inbox of the person that you're sending it to. I love FreshBooks. And if you send invoices, if you track expenses, no matter what you do, you should be trying it out if you haven't already. They are a 30-day free trial for listeners of this show. There's no credit card required. Just go to freshbooks.com upgrade and enter upgrade in the how did you hear about us section so they will know that you came to them from this show. That's freshbooks.com upgrade for a 30-day free trial of FreshBooks. Our thanks to FreshBooks for their continued support of this show and Relay FM. So there's been a bunch of um, interesting ads that Apple have been putting out recently, and there was a big selection of ads for the iPad Pro. Now, these are the types of ads that are interesting in their execution because of how they're displayed. Like, a lot of the time, the only time you ever see them is by going to Apple's YouTube page and watching right yeah um or otherwise they they tend to be used in online media like these ads these ones that we're talking about right now they're not shown on tv um right they're all they're all too long and yeah exactly right they're 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 not always bang right yeah i was hesitant to even call them ads they're like are they videos uh, they're kind of like little uh, tutorial videos. videos yeah I they're, don't know. they're they're inter- but they're interesting because of their focus so there there are uh, five of them for the ipad pro and i'll give you the quick titles of them so a new way to create a presentation a new way to take notes a new way to design your space a new way to go paperless and a new way to host your own podcast 
And the reason that I saw about these ads in the first place is because a bunch of people sent to me the podcast one uh, because naturally it's cool to see Apple sure. focusing on that. So uh, they use a bunch of app. They use actually pretty much all third-party apps for these. So that, that's cool as well because they're showing them off. So they use GoodNotes, which is a wonderful app that just received a new update, which is really great. Uh, Notability, which is another app that I really love. I, lo- I use both of those. They're like note-taking apps mm. on the iPad. Um, but for the podcast one, they show off Anchor. And it's a really good one because... Because they show how you can like just plug a USB-C microphone in and you can record and then you can go to GarageBand and make your theme song. I actually really like it. I think it's really good. And it shows off the tools that Anchor have to allow you to put a, a, a show together really quickly. You know, maybe it would have been nicer, as, as Jason points out, like to use Ferrite because that's the actual really powerful app. Right. I know why they didn't, right? Which is that with Anchor, what you get is Ferrite you can record in and you can edit. Um but Anchor, because it's made by a hosting company, mm-hmm. it's it's a good app and it has some features that Ferrite doesn't like. Yep. It will just post your podcast, right? Like it will then upload it to Anchor servers and your podcast episode is live. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm unclear, I need to follow up on this, but I think they've got it set up that if other people are running the Anchor app on iOS, you can call them yes. inside and yes. everybody records together. I'm not sure if you can do that if you're not running the Anchor app. I'm not sure if you can do that with desktops on the web or not. Yeah, I think um, it might just be app only. But yeah, yeah. it is a thing you can do. They have a lot of features, right? Like, yeah. And also as well, like, I'm sure that Apple's super aware of Anchor. They have like business relationships, sure. right? So like, the, it's not surprising to me that they feature them. But it, it probably is the right thing. I think using Ferrite in an, in an ad like this would be too, too much, right? Like it's, it's maybe a little bit overboard yeah Um, i will tell you i will admit and this may happen it depends on how much time i have and i don't have a lot of time but i i have been tempted to uh set up my camera and my table and replicate that ad with i would very much like to see that (laughs) i I don't have a white i don't have a white table with a white background so it would not be exactly the same but i have been tempted to do that because it is a little more complicated but it does uh it does actually work so right but jason will you go the whole way because these ads they all say well most (laughs) of them say at the end that they are filmed edited designed and made with the ipad pro yeah yeah, that's that's true. Uh, they, I saw on Twitter there were some people who were like really skeptical. They're like, you know, what is this? Do they really mean this? It's like, yes, they mean this. And you can like the new iPad there is Pro. There's no benefit to lying about this. The camera <laughs> is the camera is good yep. uh, and shoots 4K. Um, and you there are many video editors. And I, I was surprised that people were surprised. It shows you, I think, how skeptical people are about this do real work on the iPad thing. Mm-hmm. And I will point people back again to Serenity Caldwell's review of the sixth generation oh, so iPad good. that she did last spring, which was entirely drawn, written, edited, and produced on the iPad. Um, that you can do a lot of stuff on the iPad, folks. It's not it's not a it, it, it's not surprising. It should not be surprising at this point. Mm-hmm. That's the reason they did it is they want to just throw it out there in every single one of these that like, yes, we can we can absolutely do this all on iPad Pro. There's some conspiracy theories out there that are like, oh, they were secretly using a new version of Final Cut Pro 10 for yeah. iPad. L- LumaFusion like, is incredible. Yeah, like it, it is a absolutely fine. amazing application. Yeah. Like, and you could 100% make a video like this with Luma with LumaFusion. Like, sure. It's possible, you know? And yep. I, I find it funny because it's like, 
you don't need they don't need to say this right like if if they didn't do it like if if these if these videos were not made with the ipad people wouldn't go aha you can't do real work on the ipad it just never would have come up right but i think i actually think it's really great that they did do this because it's it's proving a point right which i think is really important this is dog fooding in public right they're like we we did this too we made these videos with the iPad Pro. You can do all of this stuff, and it's. Yeah. I like to believe that the Pro workflow team made these ads. That's that's what I like to believe. That's my my headcanon. Interesting, or at least maybe they were uh, maybe they were involved. Yeah, they were right? consulted, involved in the. Uh, you know, I and I'm gonna obscure all the information here, but I was asked by somebody who works at Apple a while ago what I thought of Anchor, and what would it be a you know a valid podcasting tool, and I said. Yes, it's very good. It's, oh, look what you did! <laughs> it's tied. It's tied into their system, mm-hmm. you know, right? But it, it, but it's very simple to use and does all the things and lets you edit and all that. I should say on that podcast that they also go to GarageBand at one point to make a theme song, which made me laugh. I thought that was really funny. Cute. I love that. Um, I think it's funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I, I don't know. I now I saw this and I was like, I wonder if that's why they asked about Anchor is is they're just getting a read on whether this is legit enough to put in the, a video like this but it totally is and it's a good video um I, I you know it's funny this is not a podcast where we talk about like Apple release some ads a lot because no. it's just like it's marketing from Apple and I, I generally I'm not super thrilled about it but I thought these were interesting enough to talk about especially since you and I care about the iPad Pro a lot and I think they're very well done and I like that they uh, filmed and edited and designed them on the uh, iPad Pro um I did want to mention, since we broke the, the seal and talked about Apple ads, I wanted to mention another Apple ad, which, again, we never do on the show, but it's uh, it, watching sports the last few weeks, uh, I keep seeing the Color Flood ad, which is for the iPhone XR. Mm-hmm. This is an ad. This is the ad where there are people in various colored outfits running around in like streams of color all over a city. Uh, you know it if you've seen it. Um, and I just wanted to say I loved this ad before I even discovered it was an Apple ad. Yeah. Um, I, it immediately caught my attention and, uh, I thought it was a great ad. Um, I didn't know what it was for. It turns out it's all the color. It's like the colors on the back of the iPhone XR, which is okay, fine. But I love it as a piece of commercial art i think it's a i think it's a really cool ad and the song that goes with it which is come along by cosmo sheldrake great name uh is super catchy and uh i think it's a cool little short film basically that also happens to be an apple ad so i wanted to i wanted to plug it and mention that i love it i can't believe i haven't seen that ad yet like this just feels like something that should have been shared on the internet like as a look at this incredible ad because it is beautiful yeah i i really like it again like how difficult must that have been to make that is a very expensive shoot right yeah my assumption is there's two things going on here you know what it reminds me of do you remember the bouncy balls ad from from sony where they they let all the bouncing balls down a hill in san francisco oh yeah yeah right with with set with uh i think it was teardrop or was it heartbeats by jose gonzalez right that was the okay the song, which you know, made that song famous, but what they did with that ad um, is they they actually did let about a, a ton of bouncy balls down a street in San Francisco, but they also put some in with CGI, right? Mm. So like they did a bit of both, right? And I expect that that's what's going on here. Uh, there's too many people. 
running way too close together. It, it feels like that there is a there is a there is a bit of both, I think, going on uh, with that yeah. one. Yeah, it may, it may be that there's some cleanup or there's some, some doubling and all of that, mm-hmm. but it is very it is very impressive. And there's things they do where they like jump, they jump, uh, they do like high dives off of a yeah, level. Yeah, that's a lot it of makes it look like a like a waterfall. Mm-hmm. And then the one guy flips back off of one level and is caught by the people. And there's a a disclaimer at the bottom that says "Don't do this." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is yeah, it's cool. It's cool. It is now. I don't know as a sales tool for the iPhone XR. Eh, I don't know. Uh, does it make a difference? The point is, Sometimes I think, it to matter. get people's attention. And and that is part of Apple's marketing campaign. It's like when they did that Christmas, you know, they do the Christmas ad every year. It's not a showing off all the features kind of ad. It's a branding campaign, and Mm -hmm. yeah, which which I I think are very important. Uh, I I wish uh, I hope that companies continue to do this. It's my favorite type of advertising. Is when you see the brand, it just makes you go, oh, that's so cool, and like that is incredibly powerful if you can do it. so yeah i think i think it's a great ad i think it's a great example uh of something i did want to just go back to those ipad pro ads just for just for oh yeah okay fine i I just like what they're focusing on like they're focusing on a bunch of like just real real work that you can do on the ipad i like the things that they've picked you know that like the these are a combination between purely creative stuff and also kind of just like regular stuff like make a presentation take notes like things that the ipad is really good at and in some places uniquely good at especially when you put like the apple pencil in and stuff like that um so i really like him i think that they chose some really good stuff and again i want to reiterate how happy i am that they chose some like really good third-party apps um to show this stuff off with because you know if they would have like for the for like notes it's like oh great look how great apple notes is it's like yeah i know but like Apple Notes can't take handwriting and convert it into text. And, you know, like, it can't really mix all the mixed media in as nicely. And so I'm pleased that they actually did choose some uh, of these third-party apps to really give them that shine. And I also hope that it results in lots of sales for these companies because they do good stuff. That was my my last thing, my last, my closing statement on the the iPad Pro. Approved. Now it's time, Mike, for us to put on our full body blue jumpsuits okay. and run through a park okay so we're gonna do that while we're talking about lunar display okay so this episode brought- no they're not gonna do that it's brought to you by our friends over at lunar display they are the makers of the only hardware solution that will take your ipad and turn it into a wireless display for your mac which means you're gonna have a second display with you all the time that's super portable with basically zero lag and stunning image quality. Setting up Lunar Display couldn't be easier. You just plug their wonderfully small red dongle into your Mac and you're good to go. Everything works seamlessly over Wi-Fi, so no matter where you are, as long as you're on the same Wi-Fi connection, you can jump back into your Mac when you're away from your desk or you can have it with you while you're at your desk and have that second display experience. But it also works over USB, so if you're traveling, I think I think about someone being on a, on a train. You know, like I've taken some long train journeys in my life and you get a little bit more space on a train maybe than on a plane maybe you've been lucky enough to get one of those like four four seat table dealios and you're all on your own and you can put your laptop down and then you can plug in your ipad with a usb cable and then you have with the with lunar display two displays right there so you can get your work done super simple to set up and you get all of that beautiful extra screen real estate um i love my lunar display i use it all the time um i whenever i'm at home i'm jumping into my mac mini now performing little tasks when i need to it is truly a wonderful thing for me to have mac os live as an app on my ipad listeners of this show can get an exclusive 10 percent discount on lunar display just go to lunardisplay.com and use the promo code upgrade at checkout to get that 10 percent off that is l-u-n-a-d-i 
D-I-S-P-L-A-Y.com and use the promo code UPGRADE at checkout. A thanks to Lunar Display for their support of this show and Relay FM. It's time for some hashtag AskUpgrade. Matt asks, I have a wallet case for my iPhone that holds two credit cards. I'm sure it wouldn't work with screen face up, but do Qi chargers work with the screen facing down and would this fry my credit cards? So let's break this down a little bit. So <laughs> there, there is like a, I don't know what it is, but there is a maximum distance that the phone can have to a Qi charger. It seems to work fine through regular cases, but like I have a pop socket on my phone, right? It will not charge to the pop socket. If I take the plastic part off and I just have the rubber part that's underneath on the pop socket, it will charge. Like there is a distance, right? From how far away uh, your phone needs to be to a Qi charger. So if your case is thin enough and you have two credit cards in it, it might work. It might be within the distance. You know, you kind of have to play around with it. But the thing is, Qi charging does not work with the iPhone screen face down because the coil's on the back of the phone. So that just doesn't work. Uh, would it fry your credit cards? I have no idea about that, Jason. Do you know? I don't know. I, it might not. I, <laughs> I, I mean, your credit card company will send you another one if it does fry them. I, I would be more skeptical about like whether it actually will work to charge them. Mm-hmm. Um, screen facing down, by the way, it's not going to work. That's not how it works. Nope. Um, it has to be the back because yep. that's where the coils are. And you have to, you could give it a try. Um, I, you know, you could give it a try and see. And the worst thing that happens is you have to get them to send you a new credit card because your credit card stops working. The magnetic strip won't. I'm a little more worried about what might happen to the little uh, chip. The chip, yeah. Uh, yeah. It might be okay or it might not or it might die over time. It's not something that I've tried. My more more concern would be that if the cards are in the way, it's going to stop working because it's going to be too much material between the charger or it's going to be a lot less effective in transmitting uh, yeah. through all of that. Uh, I will point out, uh, you might want to, if you really want to do cheat charging, you might want to look into like a Folio case. Apple makes one, but there are others Ooh, where you put yeah. your cards in the front. Good idea. Um, that didn't used to happen before the 10, but the 10 and now the, the 10S and 10S Max, Apple actually makes a Folio case and there are third-party ones. Um, they have a Hall effect sensor now on the iPhone where... Um, it it locks and unlocks when you open and close the folio, like on the iPad cover. Mm-hmm. Um, the iPhone does that now too. So that would be one way to go. Not everybody likes folio cases, although I, I know people who really love them. And there's official Apple ones now if you want to go that route uh, where you put your cards in the front and then, it, you know, flip over backward and, you know, close cards it. Cards in the front, Qi charging in the back, right? That's, sure, Mike. that's how that sure. works. That is how that mm, works. That's how it works. Dominic asks, first time iPad comic book reader. Jason, do you recommend buying a comic on the Kindle or Apple Bookstore? Which app is better for reading? I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume you say none of the above. <laughs> no, uh, no, I don't, I, I don't say that. Okay. Um, well, I mean, this is a, this is an interesting choice because I do most of my reading in, uh, in other apps. Mm-hmm. But I did write a story on Six Colors about uh, comic reading on the iPad Pro, uh, which I'm going to. Uh, Put a link in the yep. show notes I've right got it. now. Don't you worry. I've got it. All right. It, you got it. Now. I got you got it. it. All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so my answer is I don't like how iBooks does comic reading. Okay. Um, they do it. It feels to me, just my personal opinion, I don't like their uh, really kind of skeuomorphic approach to it where they want to show you like the spread and then zoom into one page and then you flip the page and stuff like that. I much prefer the Kindle stuff because the Kindle stuff is comicsology 
integrated into the Kindle app. And if you did not know, uh, not only did Amazon buy Comixology, which is the leading comic digital comics uh, exclusive seller, um, it, it they have their own app, which was the best app for reading comics that that you could you know that. that not sideloading comics, which is a separate issue where you've got files and you want to display them, but like to buy them, uh, Comixology uh, was great at reading comics that you bought. Um, when Amazon bought them, they began a process. The guy who's in charge of Comixology is actually, I think, in charge of comics at Amazon too, digital comics at Amazon. Basically, Comixology is Amazon's digital comics uh, shop too, kind of, or th- at least they work together. Um, and as a result, the the Kindle app basically has Comixology in it. So when you open a comic in the Kindle app, you are getting a good comic reading experience. I prefer the Comixology app. <laughs> um, comics from Comixology and, and Kindle, I think your Kindle purchases sync to Comixology. I'm not sure if it goes back the other way. But um, anyway, I would choose the Kindle over the, over iBooks or books because I just don't like how the Apple books experience is for comics, but other people disagree and that's fine too. I just, I, I don't need uh, like my article details it. Like there are, there are things you want out of a, a comic reader experience. And uh, right now I would, I would choose uh, Kindle or comiXology first in term. And I do in terms of, of reading comics on the iPad that I, that I bought from Amazon basically. Gareth asks, if the price of OLED screens come down to the point that Apple can use one in the cheaper phone, so like the R series, is there still a place for three phones in the lineup? If they both use, if they all use OLED, what distinguishes the R from the standard phone? So this is the assumption here that OLED will be the only distinguishing factor in the difference of these phones going forward, right? So if you look at the R line, Right now, it doesn't have OLED because OLED is the core new technology that makes the phone more expensive. My assumption would be that as we, if the R does stay around, which I am inclined to think that they're going to maybe give this a bit more of a college try than they did the C line, mm. right? Irrespective of how well or not it's selling. Apple's saying it is selling well. The rest of the world is saying it's not. I don't know what the truth is. Um, my My thinking is that as new technology finds its way into the more expensive phones, it doesn't all find its way into the R line, right? So let's imagine Apple adds X new wonderful feature to the iPhone 12. Maybe it's the three cameras. Maybe the cameras get a little bit better in some way. Maybe there's some new technology. And maybe the R at some point picks up the OLED, but it doesn't get feature X, right? The thing that's pushing the phone to make it more expensive. Because if the price of OLED screens comes down then they don't need to keep OLED away from Mm. that phone. You know, like maybe it never gets uh, 3D touch because 3D touch is more expensive. Like even when they move to OLED, it still uses haptic touch, right? So like my expectation is that the R line is just, it keeps getting better, but never has everything. Yeah, I think this is, you've hit on the real question about this line, which is, is the R, the 10R there because... Apple wants to establish a line of phones that are cheaper than their super high-end line um, that have some but not all of the features. It, it, is that what they're doing here? Or is the R, the 10R a, a side effect of where they are currently in uh, their product cycle where they need to have a phone like this or they want to have a phone like this because they, the OLED stuff is too expensive and they want to have something that costs a little bit less? Um, I, 
if if the last couple of years of Apple and the iPhone is any indication, I would expect change more than I would expect things to stay the same. If like, will the 10R or a version of it be there next year? Maybe, but in the long run, do I expect something like the 10R to stick around? Um, maybe something like it, but I also would not be shocked if it went away at some point. And then if a different kind of outlier phone came back some other time, it really depends on what Apple's uh, strategy is going forward. And that has to do with like, do they think that the 10 line as the regular line is priced right? Do they think there need to be more phones that are cheaper? Do they think the 10 line needs to be cheaper, but there could be phones above it? There are a lot of a lot of options there, but I think there's some validity in this idea that they build a nice phone that's got a lot, but not all of the features that they can sell for cheaper, that that is going to be more of a crowd pleaser. I, I think Apple wants that to be true, but since we don't know how well it's selling and how you know Apple is interpreting those sales versus other sales elsewhere in their product line, it's very hard from the outside to say, but it does seem like they want there to be a market that allows them to sell a super expensive, high-end, fancy phone with all the features and another phone that's good, but doesn't, you know, but they can price it for two or $300 less. I think they would like to do that if they can get away with it. I'm not sure whether we know if they can get away with it. This question comes from Brian Hamilton. Uh, we have two doors, a front door and a back door. If we get a smart lock, do you think it would be the main? It should be the main way to get into the house with the back door as a backup, or should the smart lock be the backup to a front door with a key? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I the fr- front door is the backup. The backdrop is the back door. Is the backup is the I don't yes. That's um, what I there's said. There's a Dr. Seuss poem in there somewhere. Uh, Brian, listener, Brian. Uh, it the whole reason you get a smart lock is for convenience. So it would be the front door because then if you come, you know, you, you come to the front door, it unlocks itself. Uh, and if you want to let somebody in, uh, temporarily as a guest, you can give them a temporary guest code and they can come in the front door. The back door is presumably not a normal way anyone enters the house. And so it seems perfect to be, uh, a backup unless your back door like the house i grew up in the the front door was never used and the back door was everybody's access point but i would say it's supposed to be your primary access point that you use a smart lock on because what you're really trying to do is just make it super convenient for people to get uh to get into the house and then you can hide a key in a rock somewhere in the backyard to get in the back door or whatever you need to do luke asks do you know if the new battery cases would fit the iphone 8 plus they do not. They are they made do not. complete. Have you seen or tried one of these yet? I have not okay. done it. I, I was enjoying Renee, Richie, and John Gruber talking in depth about these battery cases, and I haven't even haven't even been to the Apple Store to see one. I don't really have a a, a need for them because I I work at home and I travel infrequently enough that bringing a battery with me when I need it is fine i don't like yeah you you really need to be committed to you're always using your iphone and it's always out of battery that's when you that's when you go to the case because if it's Mm -hmm. occasional i don't see why you can't just bring a battery with you unless you've got very particular needs or no pockets or whatever it is in which case i understand that um so so yeah but i i by all accounts they are incredible for battery life they have the secret sauce because they're built by apple that it the phones talk to the batteries and it knows when to charge them and they work kind of without you having to press buttons or do anything and that's all great but they're for the they're also for the the um the 10s right so the iphone 8 phones are not the right size so they don't work 
Yeah, like for me, I have more devices than just my iPhone. So I typically prefer to have a big external battery that I could also use to charge my iPad or my Nintendo Switch or whatever when I travel, you know? On a daily basis, yeah. even when I'm out and about, my iPhone does not need uh, more more than what I what I already give it. You know, like it it just doesn't need it. Um, I have I I'm very happy with the battery life on my on my 10s Max. But if it is, I mean, I'm pleased that they're doing it for the people that want it, right? Like if you've been waiting for this, that would be great. And it was weird that they didn't make one. They didn't make them for the last generation of phones, which was I just seemed very strange to me that it didn't do that yeah it's it's i wonder if they're um charging tech people were working working on a different product instead oh. <laughs> air power <laughs> oh jason snow or maybe not uh, finally today jeremy asks do you think apple will experiment with more region specific iphone models in the future like the dual sim 10s max in china to compete stronger in markets where maybe they they need a little bit of a, a leg up i think it's I think it's possible. I think that the reason they went with the dual SIM was so it would sell better in China, right? I think that was why they did that. Yeah. I think Apple is open to this, but uh, what I would say is that every design variation has a cost, and Apple needs to see potential payoff for them to do it. Um, and the building a phone for China, given Apple's commitment to China and wanting to be appealing in China, makes sense. Um Building region-specific phones for markets where the iPhone is less appealing because it's too expensive basically means making region-specific cheap iPhones. I think it's possible. Um, it would be a real break from strategy, uh, break in strategy from them to do that. They would they would be purpose building a new cut rate cheap iphone for markets that can't afford the iphone and there's a question of like does that devalue the iphone maybe the iphone brand and its perception it's a high quality product maybe um but if you're in a market if you're failing to get any traction in a market like india because you're just out completely out of uh range for anybody um, i wonder if they would do that saying we can't be a luxury brand in india if our phones are our cheapest phones are too expensive, we need to build a phone that will be priced like a luxury brand in India that people who are want, you know, who have the money, who are middle class in India uh, will will buy. And right now it seems like most of their phones just can't crack that and that price is one of the big reasons why. So, you know, I think not impossible, but that would be a real change in strategy for them over just building a you know just selling and and leaning into the models that are cheaper and trying to sell them in those markets it would be you know hey apple just had their big oopsie with the uh with their forecast for their sales uh, iphone sales are slowing would it be uh unlikely for them to take a totally new approach to a market like india or brazil or any of these other kind of markets where they have not had as much traction um no, I, w I would say, although it would be a big break for them, I feel like they're in a position now with the iPhone where they might be willing to take some uh, some risks and go outside their comfort zone because they want to keep expanding. Um, but, you know, it's a I I, uh, I think it's a coin toss kind of like they might do it, but it would be a big change. So I wouldn't expect it 
Um, but you know, anything's possible given where they are right now. All right. If you would like to send in a question for us to finish the show with, uh, just send in a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and it may be picked for a future episode. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can find them in your podcast app of choice or at Relay.fm slash upgrade slash 229. Jason is the host of many shows here at Relay FM, like I am. Go to Relay.fm slash shows, and you can find something new if you are looking to to find more podcasts for your, for your listening enjoyment. But Jason also hosts a bunch of shows over on The Incomparable as well. Uh, Jason writes at sixcolors.com and he is on Twitter. He's at jsnow. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, the fine people over at FreshBooks, Lunar Display, and Squarespace. But most importantly, thank you for listening. We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snow. Live long and prosper, Lieutenant Hurley. Uh, may the force be with you. Start. No, no. No.